Uh, we're starting a brand new series today, as you can tell from around me. It is about the church, and it is called The Church That Jesus Is Building. And uh, of course, I'm going to be excited for this because church is literally my life. Church is my passion because it is my passion. It has been my life. And then because it was my life at some point and eventually became my job, that does make it easier uh, that I, I get paid to do some of this as well and I don't have to work two jobs. But um, the reason that I'm so excited about it is because of what Jesus said about the church. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I don't know about you, but I get really excited when I get to be a part of something that gets named and opposed by hell. I mean, are y'all with me? You ever thought about that? Apparently, this is pretty important for what Jesus was doing. And so here's the, what we're going to be doing for this series. We're simply going to look at the opening chapters of Acts. We're going to go straight through the opening chapters of Acts and look at what Jesus started after his crucifixion and his resurrection. What we see in the Bible is the birth of what we call the New Testament church. He said, I will build my church. And there was a part of me for about two seconds that thought a good title for this series would be The Church That Jesus Built because we're studying something that was written about 2,000 years ago and something that happened about 2,000 years ago, except then I realized that's actually wrong because Jesus has never stopped building his church. And the reason that we want to do this series is because Jesus also never gave us a different way of doing church than what we see in the book of Acts. Now, the problem is humanity has come up with a different way of doing church than what we see in the book of Acts. And so uh, these next eight weeks throughout this series is going to be a little uncomfortable. It's going to be a little provoking because what we need to do is, is get back to the church that Jesus is building, the church Jesus started building 2,000 years ago that he never changed the recipe for, and that's what this series is about. But let me tell you why I'm most excited because I think it's gonna help you answer the question that most of you were asking. I get asked this so often by people here at Grace Life, by people in other churches. I don't get asked this question in the hallway after a sermon where everybody's smiling and shaking hands. I get asked this question in my office where someone looks at me without a smile and says, is this really all there is? I mean, is this the Christian life? Believe in Jesus, try to be good, go to church, wait till you die. Is this really it? And as we're going to see as we study the book of Acts, the answer is no, that is not it. There is so much more. Matter of fact, what we're going to see in the book of Acts is that according to Jesus, the church is, at least should be, and I believe can be, the greatest threat to the kingdom of darkness as Jesus came out of the tomb. Are you with me? And when you see that, though, many of us look around at our lives and we go, well, I don't know, I work a job, I hate, I struggle with sin, and I can't be good enough, and church isn't always exciting for that one hour on Sunday mornings. Is this all there is? Well, what I really want you to know is that sentence I said a minute ago was missing a few words. I've preached it that way before. Here's the correct words. The church on mission with power is the greatest threat to the kingdom of darkness since Jesus came out of the tomb. And that's what we're going to find. So, hey, if you've got your Bibles, I'd love for you just to follow straight along. There will never be a better chance because, like I said, we're going straight through the book of Acts. So we're going to be at chapter 1, verse 1. Don't worry if you're new to Grace Life or you didn't bring your Bible this morning. It's all going to be right here on the screen. And we're going to begin right here where the author says, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach 
until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And let's just do a quick pause to make sure we understand some context here. What is this in the first book? What is, what is that? There's only one Bible, right? What is this? Who's Theophilus? Okay, the author of the book of Acts is a guy named Luke. The same Luke who wrote the gospel of Luke. So when he refers to in his first book, he's referring to the gospel of Luke where he wrote about all the things Jesus began to do and teach. And now what he's doing is he's writing what is going to happen through the disciples that Jesus has left behind on the earth and working through what we call the church now, right? So that's what he's doing. In reference to Theophilus, look, there are two theories and the truth is we don't know which one. There is a really good chance that this was actually a patron a wealthy person in society because Luke, by career, by trade, was a doctor. And back then, in order to actually have a doctor, you had to be wealthy. So there's a really good chance that Theophilus was someone who wanted to know about Jesus and paid Luke to write his version or at least to give him some information. What have you heard? What are you doing? Because later in the book of Acts, we see that Luke actually begins to travel with them. And so that's one option, but we don't really know. The other option, because Theophilus simply means loved by God, many scholars believe that Luke is writing to all of the followers of Jesus who believe they are loved by God, and he's just using that kind of as a pseudonym, if that makes sense. Truth is, it doesn't matter who Theophilus is. What matters is that we understand the two books. One is, this is everything Jesus did and said on the earth, and the second one, the book of Acts, is this is the church that Jesus is building, Right? Let me tell you something cool about these two books. We work with uh, some folks that are, well, let's just say they are working uh, to see people come to know Jesus in hot and sandy places. They are working specifically in cultures that are in, endangered to their life, and there is dangerous to their lives, and, and uh, they are seeing Muslims come to faith and declare that Jesus is the one true king, and uh, that's amazing. And you know what happens uh, in this group of uh, people that are, are coming out of the Muslim faith and into uh, the Christian faith to follow Jesus? They do one thing first. They memorize the book of Luke, and the book of Acts. They memorized the books of Luke, Luke and Acts because they believe, first of all, we wanna know everything we can about Jesus, and then we wanna know everything we can about who we are supposed to be. They actually believe the book of Acts is a job description and a model for how they're supposed to do life. Wow, what if the American church could figure that out? That's what we're gonna see if we can do. So let's keep going. In verse three, it says, he, this is Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering, after his crucifixion. He presented himself alive to them by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. If you are new to church or you've grown up going to church on occasion or you've simply heard enough that that sort of makes sense, but not completely. Maybe you believe Jesus died, he rose again, he goes to heaven. And you're like, what is this 40 day stuff? Well, here's the reality of what happened. Jesus was crucified. Three days later, he rose from the dead. And then he did not immediately ascend to heaven, but he actually spent 40 days on the earth teaching his closest followers. He didn't go out and wander around giving big speeches and feeding the 5,000 anymore. He spent 40 days with his closest followers teaching them about the kingdom of God, making sure now they finally understand. If you remember the way Jesus would speak in all of the gospels, he would speak in parables often. And finally, he's like, let's sit down and let's have class. And anytime you're confused, we're going to answer the questions. Because in 40 days, 
you're going to need to know what's really happening. So it says, and while staying with them, he ordered them, don't go anywhere. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem. That's where they were. He says, but wait, wait for what? Wait for the promise of the Father. Something has been promised to you. He actually had talked to them about it. We see this in the book of John, what we call the upper room discourse, where right before he was crucified, he got together with his closest followers again, and he told them something was coming. He says, I want you to wait for this promise from the Father. He said, this is what it is. You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And he's referring to what John the Baptist has said about him in the very beginning. You just stay right there uh, as you're following along in Acts. I'm going to jump back to the beginning of Matthew. And John the Baptist came along and said, I baptize you with water for repentance, meaning you are coming to me to be baptized in water because you know you're a sinner. But someone is coming after me. He's mightier than I am. His sandals, I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that's such an important thing for you to understand. It was said of Jesus, this is what he was coming to do before he had ever done one single thing. Think about this. At this point in history, the only thing that has ever happened is what you and I know as Christmas. That's it. Born in a manger, wise men, shepherds, that's it. He's never done another thing. Nobody's ever heard from him since. I mean, there's not. And then John the Baptist says, look, he is coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, here's the thing. If I were to stand up here today and say, or in any church around the, the world and say, Jesus came to seek and save the lost, everybody would go, amen. And then when I stand up and say, but Jesus came to baptize you with the Holy Spirit, they go, hmm. <laughs> Theologically, I believe we need to have a debate. Now look, I know I'm already making some of you uncomfortable, depending on the church tradition you grew up in. But I am only reading what Jesus said or what the Bible says about Jesus. At this point, now they are going to walk from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives. Now, don't get confused. Jesus said, don't go anywhere, but wait in Jerusalem. You need to understand the Mount of Olives is literally a hill right outside of Jerusalem where they look down upon Jerusalem. So all they really did was just kind of take a little walk and look. They're, they haven't left, so to speak. And it says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Really? But he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. He's redirecting. Look, he just told them, look, wait, don't go anywhere. Don't do anything. You're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so they take a little walk and they sit down. And the first thing that they begin to do is to ask for information. He's promised them the Holy Spirit. He's already told them some things about the Holy Spirit before, before he's crucified. And all they want is an answer to what is probably the most controversial issue of their day, the Messiah. When is the Messiah coming back? Now, at this point, they're looking at him because they figured out it's him. You were dead. Now you're not. You're the son of God. You're a risen savior. You are supernaturally powerful. You, you, you're the Messiah. So now tell us, when are you going to solve all of our problems? When, when are you going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Essentially, they are saying, would you give us a sermon on the end times? And Jesus is like, wait a minute, wait a minute. You, you've missed the point. I'm not even gonna give you any more information. You don't need more information. What you need to do is be reminded you have a mission and you're gonna have power. You will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. 
to Judea, to all of Samaria. I mean, here's the thing, though. Here's what, I wonder if the church today has the same problem. Where we, don't, we want information and we want to debate controversial topics. Don't misunderstand me. There are answers about the end times. There are answers about some of these topics, and the Bible tells us not to be ignorant of them, and they are in there. I, I just want to make a very simple point. I, I've been the lead pastor of Grace Life now for 13 years, and I don't know that anyone has ever come to me and said, hey, pastor, when are we going to go out and share Jesus with the lost? But I can tell you many times I've had someone come to me and say, hey, pastor, when are you going to do a series on the end times? Like we're losing sight of what we're actually here for. And again, the end times, it's in here, it's important, it's got a place for you to know, but it doesn't supersede what we're actually here to do. What we're here to do is more important. So just for the fun of it, I thought today I will finally do this. I've never done this in 13 years. Let me give you a sermon on the end times. Next verse. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. These would be angels. And the angel said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? And I'm thinking, I don't know. I probably would too. I mean, <laughs> Jesus had a body that was crucified on a cross. We laid it in a tomb. And now it's up and walking. We've seen the scars. We've seen the wounds. And now this physical body, like I just walked with him right beside him, hot, dusty, up the amount of olives, and now it's floating? Well, I'm going to stare at a floating body too. I mean, that's kind of why I'm doing that. Like, it makes perfect sense. But they said, why do you stand looking into heaven? Because, catch this, this Jesus was taken up from you into heaven and will come in the same way you saw him go into heaven, referencing the prophecies about the Son of Man from the book of Daniel that the Messiah will return riding on the clouds. This is the way we've seen him go into the clouds. He will come back one day. Here's your end time sermon. There will be an end time. <laughs> Jesus will return. And at that point, anybody who does not declare Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior died for me and I believe who he is as the Son of God, they're gonna be in a really bad spot, which is why Jesus said, let's not debate that. It's fine if you want to read about it. It's in the book. Let's not spend time arguing about that. I'm not going to tell you the hows, the whens, and the whats, and any of those other debates. What I'm going to tell you is it will happen, and we need to keep what Jesus said in mind. But you will be witnesses. You will be my witnesses. That's what we are here to do, which, by the way, might explain why at the very end of every gospel, I will read to you out of Matthew 28, Jesus gave his followers, the church on the earth, a job to do. We refer to it as the Great Commission. This is out of Matthew 28. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Go, make disciples to all nations. Go everywhere. Everybody who hasn't heard of me, go and tell them. Now, here's what is really interesting that we miss. His next words were not. Now get moving, come on, go, 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 go. See, we think that's the way it plays out because that's the end of the book of Matthew and you have to turn a page. No matter which gospel you read, you have to turn a page. But what happens in our Bible reading, we go, oh, I finished the book, let me go to work. And you don't realize what happens if you turn the page is Jesus says, but don't leave yet. See, the beginning of the book of Acts is what happens next. 
He says, look, you're going to go to all the world. You're going to make disciples of all nations, and I want you to go and do that. But if you do turn the page and you read it as one thing, you find out his next words to them were, but wait. Wait, because you can't do this job without the promise of the Father. You can't do this job without the power of the Holy Spirit. Again, in verse 4, he had ordered them not to depart. Ordered. That kind of language doesn't really occur in anywhere else Jesus spoke to his disciples. He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That is what actually comes next. Look, before I go any further, we need to address this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts, because the truth is this is among the most controversial and divisive topics in our church world today. And I want to thank you that none of you have left already. And I mean that sincerely. And, and the reason for that is because many of you may have grown up in a church tradition that teaches something very, very different from what I seem to be hinting at so far and what you may fear that I'm going to teach here in a moment. And, and what you need to understand is my tradition was very, very different in what I was taught as well. And so, you know, there are churches that never preach on the first two chapters of Acts. There are churches that believe different things from what we are believing if we just read this at face value today. And so if we could, before we go any further, I want to give you a really quick history lesson. I'm going to give you about 2,000 years of history in about three minutes, if that's okay. You'll have to excuse the incredible summary and gloss over in order to do that. But basically, here's how it goes. If we back up 2,000 years to this very point where Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he tells them, wait, get the Holy Spirit, that'll happen. We'll read about it next week in chapter 2. And then for the next three to 400 years, the church will operate much like we see in the book of Acts. Matter of fact, the stories from the book of Acts is at least the first few decades of that. They will go in great power. Every time they go and preach, we'll see a demonstration of supernatural power of God in heaven, proving that he is greater than nature upon the earth. The story about Jesus will be accompanied by great power. But because Jesus said, my church will press up against the gates of hell and hell will lose, then they will also be experiencing for those three or 400 years incredible opposition from Satan, from hell, and it will come through religious institutions, it will come through government institutions, Christianity is illegal and persecuted, and many people will die for their faith until we get to Emperor Constantine, the leader of the greatest empire upon the earth, the Roman Empire at the time, and he declares Christianity an official religion. And most of us, when we hear about that in history class, go, yes, finally, amen. But the truth is it might have been the worst moment for the church because a couple of things happened when it became no longer persecuted and an official religion of a pagan empire is suddenly they started having paid leaders and decided that the Bible needed to be in the language of the empire, which was Latin, but nobody spoke Latin in the nations that they conquered except for the priest. And so for the next thousand years that we refer to as the Middle Ages, people would go to church to have a church service in Latin that they didn't understand much of, and the Bible was in Latin, and they couldn't read it. And coincidentally, when the Bible was in a language nobody else could read it, we also call those thousand years the Dark Ages. And then at about 1,400, people decided we had to do something about this. And they decided... Let's translate the Bible back into people's languages. Started with English, and many people gave their lives. They were cruci oh, not crucified. They were burned at the stake. They were killed in order to put 
the Bible into a language we could read. Fast forward, people get the Bible. They begin to read it. And when they start reading it, they go, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And they begin praying what they see in here. God, give me your spirit. God, fill me with your spirit. Jesus, thank you for your grace. It was amazing, the restoration to the things in scripture. But then what began to happen in the world is also a cultural move. Matter of fact, at that point, People began to see the miraculous happen, the supernatural happen, as they actually pursued what they saw in the Bible. And it was only until about 150 years ago or so that as a result of the Enlightenment, the age of reason, where people became intellectual and highly dignified, that the church says if we want to reach people, we have to stay intellectual and dignified as well. So various traditions and various denominations or whatever began to write statements of doctrinal faith that would deal with some of the weird spiritual stuff because let me tell you, it got weird. You let people read this, it gets weird because somebody read something in here that says, hey, look, have you ever seen this one? This says that if we are a true follower of Jesus, we can pick up a snake and it won't kill us. Everybody bring a snake to church next week and we're gonna find out who the true believers are. And that really happened. With good reason and with a good heart, to reach the culture that was becoming more dignified and intellectual, churches said, we've got to put a limit on some of the craziness. Unfortunately, the great side effect of that was, at best, the supernatural and the work of the Holy Spirit was relegated to a few churches that put Pentecostal in their name. And at worst, most of us simply discounted the miraculous and supernatural altogether. Welcome to 2023. We just sang a song a minute ago that I asked the team to do. We were talking about who am I to deny what the Lord can do. He is able. We actually have to sing songs to say he's able because we have lost faith that our God is a supernatural God, that our God is El Shaddai, God Almighty, seated upon his throne. He made all of this simply by speaking. We, we've got to get back to the idea that our God actually was born from a virgin that he actually had a body that was killed, but the body didn't stay dead, and it actually did float up to heaven. And, and where are we to think that we, have, we simply should come and sing a song and not expect God to move in power in our lives anymore? Is there more to the Christian life? Oh, heck yeah. Let's get back to what Jesus said in his culminating statement here. Verse 8, because this is our, our main emphasis for today. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will receive power. When? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then what, Jesus? You will be my witnesses. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I want you to think about how important these words are because I need you to know this. These are the last words spoken by Jesus in a physical body. These are the last words he is going to speak to his disciples, the last command he is going to give them to go and be the church upon the earth for the next at least 2,000 years and counting. The last words he's ever going to utter. But you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you to be my witnesses. How in the world has the church become something that has no power, discounts the Holy Spirit, and doesn't talk to anybody about him? How have we lost our way? Can we just talk about those three words? I think those three phrases, that's the most important thing we can do. This word witness, the actual Greek word here is martus, which is where we get our word martyr. 
What that means, the idea that we're going to be a witness for Jesus is that we're going to be willing to die to testify to what we know. Now, here's the reality, everybody, at least everybody here today. Share with me, say thank you out loud. Can you all do that? Say thank you. You know what you just said thank you for? Because you get to live in a place where you will most likely never have to give your physical life to have faith in Jesus Christ. That might actually work against us. We become quite complacent. But you will actually have to be a martyr still. You see, there are things that you will have to die to. You may have to die to your pride. You may have to die to your fear of man. Why is it so hard for us to invite someone to church or to tell someone in a large group of non-Christians that we're actually a Christian? Maybe we're going to have to die to some of that wanting to impress everybody else or die to the idea that we don't have the best answer, the truest answer. We're going to have to die to something. And if you aren't paying attention and you live under a rock, you're going to have to die because cancel culture is real. Cancel culture is real. And it is opposed to an absolute standard of truth that comes from an absolute standard of right and wrong written by an absolute God. That's the reality of it. I'm sorry to tell you, but it is. And because of that, we may not need to be prepared to give our physical lives, but we're going to need to be prepared to give something else, maybe a career. Some of us will lose jobs. If you've paid attention, a football coach who simply wanted to pray at the end of a game after a game was over, lost his job, had to go all the way to the Supreme Court. The good news is he won. Teachers in public schools who actually believe God created us male and female and God is not confused or wrong about who is which or which is what may lose their jobs. Some of us will lose social media followers and friends. By the way, they never were, if you do. Some of us will lose promotions. There are going to be times you don't get the corner office, you don't get that next rank, all because you're opposed by a spirit from are you guys with me? You see, again, the job of a martyr, Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses. The job of a martyr is to be a witness to the point of death. And he knew it would be so difficult. You won't be able to do this in your own human strength. You're going to need power from the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, the book of Acts and what we're going to be looking at, the stories in the book of Acts, really the central theme of the church that Jesus is building, the central theme in the book of Acts is power and Holy Spirit. The word power shows up 10 times in the book of Acts. The phrase, the Holy Spirit, shows up 56 times in the book of Acts. Now, I realize some of you may be new to church. This whole idea of the Holy Spirit, some of you are like, oh, this is cool, man. I'm so excited. It's like the Star Wars force, but a Christian version. I can't wait to get it. Y'all giving that out in the hallway after church today? So let me, let me just clarify a few things, because what I want to do today is pray for you to have a new impartation of the Holy Spirit before we're done. It's not gonna get weird, relax. Shouldn't have to apologize for that. But I wanna make sure you understand some things about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is the third person of God. We have the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Let me show you how we have one God, but a God who reveals himself in three persons. In Genesis 1, in the very beginning, God said, let us... Let us, what you gonna do with that? Make man in our image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. His being a singular pronoun, which tells us there is one God. He created them in his image. One God, us and our plural pronouns that reveals he 
he reveals himself in three persons. So apparently to fully understand the true nature of someone, pronouns actually matter. Just for the fun of it. The Holy Spirit is a person, not a wind, not a force. The Holy Spirit is the person of God dwelling in each person who has made Jesus their Lord and Savior. The Bible refers to the Holy Spirit as a he, never an it. If you refer to something as an it, you can't have a relationship with you with it. it. It doesn't happen. Some of you have tried, I know. Some of you talk to your plants. You're really weird. Have you noticed the plants never talk back? No matter how times you spray them with water. Oh, you're so cute. I just like no, it does not matter. Whatever this whole thing about, well, the carbon dioxide coming out of my mouth. No, stop it. It's, it's a bunch of hooey. That's an it. You have relationships with persons. The Bible says the Holy Spirit has a mind, the attribute of a person. The Holy Spirit has a will, the attribute of a person. The Holy Spirit has emotions, the attribute of a person. So why would God, who reveals himself in three persons, why would he have one of his persons live inside of us? Why do we need the Holy Spirit? And the answer is very simple. Jesus alluded to it. We cannot be effective witnesses without the power of the Holy Spirit. We will not be able to resist and overcome sin. We will not be able to stand firm against the enemy. He hates Jesus and he's going to hate you. We will not be able to be bold in a face of a culture that opposes absolutes and an absolute God. And by the way, what you and I face in our world with cancel culture today is no different from having an entire pagan government, the Roman Empire, trying to kill you. It's nothing new in 2,000 years. That's why we're going to need the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to need the Holy Spirit in us to have ongoing communication with God because you're not one of the disciples with Jesus in a body right beside you. No, we have God who is spirit, who puts his spirit inside of us to give us a spiritual voice and spiritual ears. But the one that's most left out when people preach is that we're going to need the Holy Spirit in us to demonstrate supernatural power from El Shaddai to accompany and validate the message of Jesus. See, if you read the book of Acts, when they spoke about Jesus, they demonstrated that Jesus was the risen Savior, that he was the Son of God, that he had the power of creation within him, that he could raise the dead, that he could heal. The disciples that we read about, they raised the dead. They were miraculously set free from prison. They had appearances by angels. They, they did amazing things because the reality that Jesus knew is it's an absolutely ridiculous story. And if a story is all you've got, you won't get anywhere. Just try it. Walk out there. Go find somebody who doesn't believe in Jesus. I really dare you this. Go to a hot and sandy nation where people are predominantly another religion and walk up to them and say, hey, I'd like to tell you a story about a little Jewish girl who got pregnant but claimed it wasn't from a man because it was God and she gave birth to the son of God and he got killed, but he didn't stay dead because God's really cool and so now God's alive. Would you come to church with me? It's not heresy to say it's a ridiculous story. It's a ridiculous story because we have natural minds and we are natural people and that is a supernatural story of a supernatural God. And if you want there to validate that, you're gonna need the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit to do two things. Number one, to open somebody's heart because it's a hard heart. But you're also gonna to need to be able to demonstrate that power upon the earth. And we've given up on that today. So I hope at this point, what you're really asking is the only question I think you need to be asking today. How do I get the Holy Spirit? How do I get the Holy Spirit? See, Jesus told his disciples, stay right here, stay in Jerusalem. We missed that. We're gonna read about that story next week. We've missed that event. So you'd say, I, here I am now. How do I get the Holy Spirit? And I'm gonna real quickly show you how this 
happens as a result of, get this statement, our experience of the Holy Spirit changes with our proximity to the Holy Spirit. Our experience of the Holy Spirit changes with our proximity to the Holy Spirit. So let me show you this out of John. Right before Jesus was crucified, again, we call it the upper room discourse. He got together with his closest disciples and he said, I need to talk to you. Last things he did before he's crucified. He said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper because I'm leaving. But he'll give you a helper to be with you forever. Forever, He will be the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. He currently dwells with you, but he will be in you. Currently with, will be in. These words matter. The word with actually means around. That's why the Bible says, where can I go from the Spirit of God? Nowhere, because God is everywhere. His Spirit is everywhere. And so the Holy Spirit is around us. He's around everyone. He's, there's nowhere you can go. And he is working, as he's around us, he's working to draw us to God. And Jesus tells his disciples, the Holy Spirit's been around you. He's been with you. He's been drawing you. And soon the Holy Spirit will be in you. That word in actually just means within, within, from around outside to within. After this discourse, Jesus is crucified when he's raised from the dead. Later in the book of John, it says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. The Father sent me to do something that cost me my life. I'm sending you to do something that may cost you yours. It's not just to get together once a week for an hour. I'm sending you to do something, but that's extra. He says, when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. He's been around you, but now receive him within you. Most scholars believe and understand that this was the moment where the disciples would, the phrase we use, became saved. Up until this point, they had recognized Jesus was the son of God. Up until this point, they had recognized that he had miraculous power. But this is the first time that they are able to recognize after he's been crucified and rose from the dead that he is the risen Savior, the sacrificial lamb who died for the sins of the world and can now provide you eternal life. And he says, so the Holy Spirit's been around you. You figured out some things about me. Now I want you to know who I truly am. I want my spirit in you, within you. And yet, Jesus said, don't go anywhere. And over the next 40 days, he said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. With you is around. In is within. And upon is the word overwhelm or immerse. We will have a different proximity to the Holy Spirit at this point. Matter of fact, I love that the Greek word actually means this. That the word upon actually means that the experiencer, to be the experiencer, Experiencer of an action by a superior being. Did y'all get that? The Holy Spirit will make you the experiencer of an action by him, a superior being. And I want to give you a picture if I could, because this word baptized with the Holy Spirit, as Jesus kept saying, you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. John the Baptist said, Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. That word baptized, overwhelm, to be the experiencer of an action by a superior being to be immersed. I want to give you this picture here. The Bible, Jesus talks about in the book of John also calling water 
the Holy Spirit, that out of you will flow rivers of living water. This he said about the Holy Spirit. So for my picture, it's very easy for you to see this water as the Holy Spirit, and this is you. And we spend our lives with the Holy Spirit around us. The problem is because of some of the junk inside of us, y'all getting this? That the Holy Spirit is simply around and we're not able to have him within us or, or to have an experience where we're immersed. And so what we have to do is invite the Holy Spirit as Jesus did with his disciples to receive the Holy Spirit in. Now, you know, if I drop this back in there right now, it's still full and not much of this water is actually gonna get into the can. So here's a whole nother sermon for free. But the more of the Holy Spirit you want in you, the more of the you and the world you might need to get out of you. But once you get into a proximity to the Holy Spirit, that there is less of you and less of the world and more of the Holy Spirit, and you find yourself in a place, like Jesus said, rivers of living water will flow out of you. But then you can also ask the Holy Spirit to come upon you and you'll be immersed in the power of the Spirit. So where are you? Are you floating around in the world? The Holy Spirit's around you. He's drawing you. He must be drawing you. You're here today. But is he in you? One thing that no scholar, no pastor, no tradition, no denomination debates. I don't care where you come from, pastor, priest, any name you want to give them, everyone would agree. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit dwells within. Within. You can be in the world and not be a follower of Jesus. The Holy Spirit's around you. He's drawing you to God. When you can say Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, matter of fact, the Bible says no one can say and actually mean that Jesus Christ is the Lord without the Holy Spirit within. Or are you actually immersed? Are you operating in the power of the Holy Spirit? Would you say that you get up every day and say, Holy Spirit, today I want to be the experiencer of you moving upon me in this world to be a person willing to die to testify to the greatness of Jesus. So here's the point. You're already with the Holy Spirit around you. And today you get to ask. If you've never made Jesus your king, you get to ask Jesus to not only forgive you, not only give you eternal life, but to put his spirit within you. Some of you are already there. And maybe for you, you need to ask for the Holy Spirit to come upon you, to immerse you. Here's a promise from Jesus. He says, I tell you, ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. What father among you, if a son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, meaning not perfectly godly, if you then know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So that's what we're gonna do. You just need to decide where you are. Are you asking him to be within you? Are you asking him to immerse you? You can actually do both. And so that's exactly what I'm gonna do right now. I'm gonna lead you in a conversation with God and I'm gonna pray for you. So first of all, let me just explain this as point blank if I haven't made this very clear yet. You are a sinner. I'm a sinner. Sin is the word that we use to describe anything that's not perfectly godly in our lives. No one here is as perfect as God. The good news is God loved you so much that he fixed that problem for you. He sent his son, Jesus, 
to live a perfect life upon the earth so that when he was crucified on the cross, his body broken, his blood shed, he could pay for your sins and mine. And then by the power that raised him from the dead, he can offer you eternal life. We call it the free gift of salvation. And if you have never said, Jesus, I want you to be my Lord and Savior, I'm going to help you do that right now. And the Holy Spirit will come to live in you. I'm going to do that prayer first because then I want those people as well as anyone else to be able to say, now I want the Holy Spirit to come upon me. Everybody good? Would you all pray with me? If you have never made Jesus your king, would you simply pray and say something like this to yourself and to him? Lord Jesus, I thank you that you died for me. And so now I choose to live for you. I thank you that you love me. I thank you that I'm forgiven. In my prayer today, would you fill me with your spirit and give me a life of great meaning in your kingdom? And now if you'll all just stay in prayer, I want to pray for every single one of you. Just join me if this is your request. God, I pray right now that you would bring your spirit upon us that you would overwhelm us, you would baptize us, you would immerse us in your spirit, that we would be the experiencer of a supernatural act by you upon us to empower our lives to make a difference in this world. We're tired of asking, is there more? Now we see, now we read, now we know there is more. Holy Spirit, would you come upon us? Would you give us more and would you do more through our lives? And all God's people said... Amen, everybody.